Welcome to another episode of Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, and skeptic. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group's about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No sales from the front ever. And no smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know what I'm talking about. RDI is also this podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting and successful business people getting things done, and I pick their brain for your entertainment and hopefully education. And if you enjoy this podcast, give it a like, share it, and I'd really appreciate it if you haven't already rated on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever your favorite uh, podcasting app may be. Uh, this is a free podcast, and all that stuff really does help. If you have any comments or suggestions, too, you can reach out to me. Go to renegadedetroit.com renegadedetroit.com. If you are interested in attending the local meetings, you go to meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. You can hit me up on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess. And if, and when I ever get these videos, uh, edited and uploaded, you can go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. All right. Legal disclaimer. Cause this world's full of wimps and no way, shape or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer, an attorney, and or other licensed professionals. I also recommend you grow up and you be an adult and don't sue me. All right. Show quote of the week. Time for the Renegade Detroit Investors Show Quote of the Week. Every week I try and pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And uh, I always try and pick one, hopefully for the guests too. So wealth can also be that attitude of gratitude with which we remind ourselves every day to count our blessings. One of my personal heroes, Chris Gardner, wealth can also be that attitude of gratitude with which we remind ourselves every day to count our blessings. Chris Gardner. And if you guys don't know who Chris Gardner is, the pursuit of happiness Excellent book, and they did an okay job on the movie. The book was better. And without further ado, let me introduce you to my guest this week, Vicki Love. Vicki is a full-time real estate investor who's been investing in real estate for over 20 years. She started her investing career in the mid-80s after watching an infomercial with Tom Vu. His late-night infomercial, infomercial featured Vu surrounded by luxury items promoting his free 90-minute seminar to learn the same secrets he used to make millions. Vicky attended his free workshop, decided not to attend the high-priced weekend event, and instead bought her first rental property in Detroit in 1984. She's a grizzly vet, folks. She then bought, rehabbed, and rented, and eventually sold her 12 rentals in Detroit for a nice profit to help to pay for college education for her children. Uh, Vicky then spent several years in the mortgage industry, eventually owning her own mortgage company. By the end of 2006, she noticed the start of the decline in property values and decided it was a great time to get back into real estate investing. Since that time, Vicki has acquired 17 rental properties, which she manages herself. She's also done wholesaling, retail flips, private lending, and lease option deals in an effort to fund her ultimate goal of owning 20 rentals free and clear, which will be a retirement fund. Vicki is a big proponent of the less is more philosophy of real estate investing. While many gurus brag they have done thousands of deals, Vicky has no intention of working that hard. <laughs> the real estate 
gives Vicky the income and freedom to do what she loves most. Her real passion in life is ministry. She is the author of two Bible-based books on money, which I did. I've bought both, and I have here today. Uh, one is "Stop Robbing Peter to Pay Paul," and the other is "Changing Your Money Mindset: Twenty-One Days to a More Prosperous Life." They're excellent books, by the way. Easy to read. They're not difficult at all. Don't be scared about them. You can go to her website, or you can go get them on Amazon.com uh, as well. Um, and Changing Money Mindset has taught these principles at churches nationwide. She co-pastors Life Renewal Church in Farmington Hills with her husband of 33 years, Glenn. They are the proud parents of two adult children and one five-month-old grandchild. You can go find her. Go to Jubilee Homes, J-U-B-I-L-E-E Homes at Yahoo.com. Give her a call at her office, 248-796-8218, or go to VickiSpringLove.org, VickiSpringLove.org, and it'll all be in the show notes. Thanks for coming out, Vicki. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, I'm excited to be here. I know. This is going to be fun. We actually had you come out to one of the last Renegade Detroit Investors where we had speakers mm-hmm. before the podcast, and I think it was an excellent presentation, so I'm actually pretty excited about this because we get to kind of do like... I don't know if you remember your presentation, but I have lots of questions about it. And we'll get to dig back into your life. So the Grizzly vet that you are, 1984 Detroit had to be completely different than 2016 Detroit, right? Or Absolutely. Back then, 1984, I was actually still living in Detroit. So I still uh, believed in the community. And and you still had a lot of really good neighborhoods and um I had no qualms about buying a house in Detroit and, you know, renovating it and, and getting a good tenant. I, I just felt it was a good place to be at that time. And, and I've always been the kind of person where, um, I don't mind taking a risk. That's why, you know, after I went to that one night seminar, I said, well, I don't need to give him money for a weekend event. Why don't I just go buy a house? So I just went and bought a house. I will say though that I didn't have any money at that time. So I bought the house on a credit card. Better than not buying a house. Better though, right? than not buying a house. <laughs> was it zero interest or do you remember what the interest was? Oh, on no. Back card? then it was crazy interest. It was like 12, 18% interest. But I still was able to because the house only cost $6,000. Oh, my God. $6,000 house. Yeah. Do you, do you remember the address on your first house or do you remember the street? Or? I remember the street was on Robeson, Robeson. in Detroit. I don't okay. remember the address, though. All right. Yeah. Where did you live when you lived in Detroit back then? I lived on Glastonbury near Seven Mile and Southfield Freeway. Okay, so not too far from here, right? Right, not yeah. too far from here. Yeah, correct. Stones Throw. Okay, mm-hmm. that was that was back in the day. Um, did you grow up in Detroit? Do you live I in Detroit? did. I've been in Detroit my whole life, okay. born and raised. Detroit. Where did you Where did you grow up, and what was life? Because for I moved to Detroit mm-hmm. in two thousand and seven. And when you drive around, you do all these deals and you look, you can't help but feel like you missed like something amazing. Like you showed up late to the party and now it's like all. Mm. So I'm always curious of what life was like in the neighborhoods and how different it was. I did grow up in Detroit and I grew up on uh, 12th Street, which is now Rosa Parks Boulevard. And some people might think that's the hood. It is now. (laughs) It is the hood now. But when I was a kid growing up, Every house on the block was there. If you go down that street now, most of the houses are missing. And um, all the neighbors knew one another. We felt safe as kids to walk around the block and to ride our bikes in the neighborhood. I mean, it was just it was just a normal place to be. And um, 
we grew up going to church right down the street and you know my mom sent all of us to all our kids to all the kids to church we walked to church on sunday we felt safe it was a good community like i say if you got in trouble down the street the neighbor chastised you before you got home and by the time you got home your parents already knew what you had done you know so it was <laughs> the definitely a village social network right? yes the original social network <laughs> but it was a good place to be and i will say that um my my parents, my dad uh, worked in the factory, worked at Chrysler for 43 years. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. But when we moved out of that house on uh, Rosa Parks Boulevard and moved further west, uh, my, my mom and dad bought a home near Evergreen in 8 Mile when I was like 16. They kept that house, and it was a two-family flat. And my so my mom was a landlord. Ah, And so that kind of put it in me, you know, in terms of being a landlord, because even after uh, my father passed away and she was, um, you know, by herself, she still had that house. And that was always a little extra income coming in because it was paid for. And she had two, you know, tenants in there. And she had extra income coming in. So it's amazing how these small things like my grandpa talking about how he built 12 houses from the ground up almost all by himself. And you, wow. you remember these stories in your head when you're a kid and then when you're an adult, they come back and exactly. it's nice to have things to pattern off of. So that was a really good neighborhood back then. It right? was a good neighborhood back the then. The schools good too? and The schools were excellent. I went to the local school, you know, was, uh, at the time it was Custer elementary school and, um, now it's Thurgood Marshall Elementary School. So school is still there. Uh, I went through public schools from Custer Elementary to Longfellow. Uh, it was junior high back then. And then I went to Cass Technical High School, which was, you know, you had to be smart to get in there. But I was smart anyway. Yeah, you were smart. <laughs> so, um, but the schools, the public schools were all fine. We learned what we needed to learn and went off to college and all of those good things. You know, it was, it was a different time in Detroit. You go back now and you see all the vacant lots and all the, um, the blight. And it is sad to see what used to be a vibrant neighborhood and now it's just, you know. Cratered. Not, yeah, it's cratered. Yeah. yeah. When I drive around, though, that's why I always like to ask. It does feel, I don't know, kind of like Lord of the Rings a little bit. When mm-hmm. they're, yeah, I don't know if you remember the scenes where they're walking through and there's like. All the statues. Movie. Oh, you didn't see the movie? Okay. So there's like there's evidence that there used to be a great civilization, mm-hmm. and now everybody's a lot poorer, and everything's a lot drabbier, and just doesn't look as nice. Yeah. I feel that way driving through Detroit sometimes. Like, I missed... Yeah. I don't think the future is that bad, but I just feel like I missed it, and yeah. it looked like it was amazing. It was. It was. And like I say, all the neighbors knew one another. My My siblings and I had no problem riding our bikes like three, four, five blocks away and coming back home and we all we felt safe. It was it was a good time. Mm. You know? What do you think um what do you think happened? Do you have an opinion on it? You don't have to oh. say if you don't uh. <laughs> I think it's a combination of things. It's a combination of of uh people leaving the city of Detroit to go to the suburbs. It's a combination of of corruption within City Hall, I believe that never reinvested in the neighborhoods. It's a combination of just the um, economy going up and down and the inner city, the urban communities are always affected more drastically than the suburban communities. So it's a combination of things that cause it to go down. Yeah, I definitely think for sure the corruption, right? Yeah, I think that really had a big part of it, unfortunately. Yeah, a lot of money because Detroit made a lot of money. It did. Detroit back in the made day. a lot of money. Yeah, 
Yeah, it didn't go to the right place. No, so. it did not. Well, <laughs> depends on who you ask, right? <laughs> yeah, the, whoever got it was probably pretty happy to have it. Lord that. have mercy. We won't yeah, talk about that. No, one. no. But not good for the community. Not for good sure. for the communities, not at all. When did you move to Eight Mile and Evergreen from Rosa Parks? Uh we moved when I was sixteen. That was in so now you're gonna know my age. Uh <laughs> That was in 19... You look great, by the way, I should say. Great. Very young and vibrant. Thank you. That was 1975 when we moved. Uh-huh. So, wow. Yeah. Why did you guys move, if you don't mind me uh, asking? Uh, I just think my mom wanted a better... You know, it's my parents who moved, so they just wanted a better house, and, and the other house was a two-family flat, so it was bigger, and then they were getting older, so they just wanted everything on one floor, one so they floor. got a, a ranch with everything on one floor. Yeah, I was going to say Eight Mile Evergreen. I did quite a few over there. A bunch mm. of ranches. Uh, yep, that's elderly. what they had Love a ranch. that. Mm. Yeah. When did you move out of Detroit? When did I move out of Detroit? Yeah. I moved out of Detroit back in 1985, so I've been a suburbanite for a long time. <laughs> okay, and, and what made you decide to move? It was very... I. My husband and I got married in 81. We had a home. We were fortunate enough to own a home when we got married. And uh, my husband's job back then, he traveled a lot. And so I would be home alone. We didn't have any kids. I was home alone. And um, what happened was in December of 1984, uh, we got broke into. Mm. And it was around Christmas time. And so it was fresh snow on the ground. And um, my husband was out of town, I think. I'm the one who discovered the break-in. They had, you know, they come in through the back door of the house. There was a door in the back of the house, and they had busted the window out and broke in and ransacked our house, you know, stole, you know, some things. And, and, um, but anyways, what disturbed me more than what they stole, because we had insurance, obviously, was the attitude of the police officers when they got there. Yeah. And the police officers, when they got there, uh, he was cracking a joke. Oh, yeah, they B&E'd you good. And I was like, that's terrible. That was devastating to me. And I felt so violated that someone had been in my home and now the police officer is cracking a joke about it. That's not not funny at all. It wasn't funny. And I thought thought that was totally insensitive. And then I guess maybe, you know, I was still a little naive, but and watched a little bit too much TV. But I thought they might investigate and try to find out who did it, especially since it was fresh snow on the ground. And there was uh, they broke in through the back door and you could see the tracks where they went right from the back door and went across and climbed the fence and went to the house that was kitty corner behind us. It's like you can see where the tracks went. Won't you at least go over there and knock on the door? You're not even a cop and you probably solved the yes. crime. <laughs> and, I was, and they would not do anything. They just said, oh, file, just go file a claim with your insurance company. So I their attitude of the cops put in me a fire to move out the city. And within nine months, I'd save money and moved out the city. Well, you're going to laugh, but we had our same little Detroit experience. We initially moved to the east side and we got broken into for the first time. And we were used to government working and cops working. And we mm-hmm. called the police and they didn't come out the first day. We called them again. Then they come out the second day. The third day, they finally just told us to come in to do the report they never actually came to the house. Wow. They never called me back. And after the fifth time I was broken into, they didn't even get out of the car. Oh, wow. That was in 2009. They didn't That's give me insane. a number or get out of the car. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. Well, at least in 80, 84, they, they did come to the place. That's nice. <laughs> they did come. But he yeah. cracked a joke. Yeah, it's not funny. <laughs> not funny. No. 
Jeez. Well, that's a good reason to move, that's I would say. I think that's why most people probably left, right? Yeah, yeah. They left because they didn't feel secure anymore. And with me being home alone a lot because my husband was traveling with his work, I didn't feel comfortable sleeping there at night by myself. So, Because it's not like crime just exists in Detroit, right? No, no, right. A lot of people say, like, oh, there's crime. There's crime everywhere. There is. But you want to feel like at least the cops care. Yeah. And the cops are trying to solve the crime rather than, you know. I think the criminals kind of knew, too, right? Like, exactly. word got out on the street that yeah. nobody was going to prosecute exactly. B&E. They had bigger fish to fry. So. Exactly. Something like that. Okay. So you, you moved out to the suburbs. What were you What were you doing at that time? Career-wise? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, back in the... Before, early, before your first deal, which I'm working my way up to. Before real yeah. estate, I actually, my undergraduate degree is in communications with a emphasis on public relations and advertising. And so I was a writer for four years, uh, four and a half years before I uh, got into real estate at all. I was a writer in public relations and advertising. I worked at um, Citizens Insurance Company, did all of their advertising and marketing. And my last job was at... Mercy College, I was their director of public relations. I did all of their writing, edited their alumni magazine, did all their press releases, all that kind of stuff. So I, I've always enjoyed writing, but decided I wanted to do something to make more money. So real estate That's kind interesting, of piqued my interest. Because I was going to, I'll get to your books too, for sure. So you've always enjoyed writing. I've always enjoyed okay. writing. That that was my first career was as a writer. I was a writer 40 hours a week. And so, yeah, so writing's always been something I've loved. So at some point in time, though, you're working a job, wishing you're making more money, right? watching late night TV when Mr. Vu. Exactly. <laughs> Mr. Vu came on with all these, you know, women around him and all these luxury cars and saying, hey, I made all my wealth investing in real estate. And so I was like, real estate? Well, that sounds interesting. Why don't I go see what he has to say? So I went to his late night, you know. Uh, workshop and that kind of piqued my interest. I bought my first rental and then I did do other education after there where I did actually invest money in the boot camps. But um, mostly I, I tried to learn something from the boot camp or from the training and then apply it, you know, rather than just take it home and put it on my shelf. So I was trying to do deals. That was, that's such good advice. I've been to several, some I regret, some I'm really glad I went exactly. to, right? I'm sure you have those stories exactly. as well. Same thing. I always did the same thing. It was always amazing to me how many people came and didn't try and go and do something afterwards. That was always amazing to me, too. In fact, you know, I know people have spent, you know, fifty, seventy-five, a hundred thousand dollars on real estate education and have not done any deals. Yeah. And at that point, I'm like, okay, you need to go get counseling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah why would you spend that kind of money and not do anything? Insane. It is. You know, I mean, I've spent, I, I totaled it up one time. I've spent probably about 25000 on education. But like I say, I've made far more than that in the deals that I've done. And every time I would go to a particular workshop or education, I would say, okay, Vicki, I'd have a conversation with myself. Okay, Vicki, you cannot go to another boot camp until you do something with this boot camp. So go out there and at least try the strategy to see if you like it. Oh, man, that's good stuff right there. Don't go to another boot camp if you haven't done anything from the previous boot camp. Exactly. Right? Damn, that's good stuff right there. Right. What was it about the VU pitch or the VU little mini seminar, that, that takeaway that made you go out and it's like, you know what, I'm just going to go buy it? You know, and I don't even remember what he said or, it, or I don't even remember what he said, to be honest with you. Made up mind then. Yeah, it was just, I just decided this was something I wanted to try. Now, 
Um, because I didn't go to his weekend training, I really don't know what he really taught. So I can't really comment on him. Um, but I did, um, buy some, get some books from the library and then I, um, bought some books on real estate and then I got training from, Do you remember uh, what the books Robert were? Allen, Robert Allen right here <laughs> too. One of the Robert Allen books. Yeah. I got his, uh, nothing down creating wealth. And then I, I did buy his nothing down course. I didn't go to his workshop, but I just bought the course and um, those were the ones initially that got me into the real estate um, investing. And when I bought the rental property, of course, I was very naive, very young and didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> that never happens, Vicky. And and so, you know, my husband and I at that time were both working full time jobs and we bought this house that was a um, uh, I think it was a HUD house. It was a HUD house, the first house we bought. So it needed repair. And we naively thought. Oh, we can fix this up over the weekend and then go back to work on Monday. Oops. Yeah. So five months later. Wow. Five months. <laughs> so you did the rehab on your well, first I did house. the rehab. In fact, the majority of the houses that I bought when I bought in Detroit, I did the rehab on. I was I was a hammer slinging. You you're, know, you're better than I am. I would. Uh, I have done interior exterior painting. I have laid linoleum floors, tile floors, laid subfloors. I used to do all my own electrical, replace broken windows, install locks. I would do all that stuff. Of course, I was a lot younger then, had a lot more energy. (laughs) (laughs) You still look like you could do some damage, though. I do a little bit of the work. Looks like you keep fit. Yeah, I do try to exercise, stay fit, but um, I don't. I don't do the major work anymore. Now I hire people. When I got out of it in in 1996, I had sold everything by 96, and I was out of it for 10 years. And when I got back into it. Um, I got back into it with the um, idea in my head I was going to hire people to do most of the work. My husband didn't really want to be involved with it too much because he was, you know, busy with his career. So I said, "Well, I'm gonna hire people to do all the major work." And but I always, but I do like working with my hands. So I'll do something minor, like if I just install a towel rack or something. I'm like, "Okay, I did that." <laughs> that's that's I could do that. Yeah. I could do a towel. I could do a towel rack. Yeah, yeah, a little minor stuff. Now I don't. I try not to do too much major stuff because it's too time consuming. Your first deal, did you have to convince your husband to do it or was he just on, was he on board the Vicky Love real estate train or? Well, um, I don't think he knew what he was getting into. But, <laughs> <laughs> Do know, any of us when we start? <laughs> but, you know, he loves me and he wanted to be, you know, with me doing this deal. But it became very clear as we were doing the first few deals in Detroit that he really didn't like doing it mm. because I'm a female and I'm good with working with my hands and doing handyman stuff. My husband is not good with working with his hands. Ah, and so that became ego a, maybe or? that became a bone of contention that I was, yeah. you know, expecting him to do something that really wasn't his skill set. So um, he eventually said, "I think you should just do this." <laughs> he didn't mind spending the profits, but he didn't want to be out there slinging a hammer. Yeah. So he'll still help me now and then if I need him to do just something. Very basic, like, you know, I have a house that's vacant and the city put a sticker out there. If you don't mow the grass in two days, it's going to you're going to get a ticket. He'll go over and mow the grass for me okay. if I can't get anybody else. But, <laughs> you know, I try not to have him do things because I know that's not what he wants to do. And it keeps peace at home. So, you know. So you you financed your first purchase with a credit card. So it uh-huh. was like a cash back kind of situation, right? Because 1984, I don't think they how they do that back then. It was just one of those, you go get a cash advance yep. and um, you, 
I would go. <laughs> and and in fact, the majority of those houses I bought back then, I bought with credit cards because I didn't have any money. And then at some point, like uh, the beginning of 1986, I actually quit working to become a stay-at-home mom. So I was a stay-at-home mom for seven years. We only had one income coming in, so we really didn't have any money. And I was buying houses, so I was buying them on credit cards. They were like at 12%, 18%. Now, I don't recommend people do that, uh, but I was very disciplined in that I only used the credit cards for the houses, and I still was able to like buy a house for six or 7000 spend maybe 3000 fixing it up because it didn't, didn't need that much work. And then I was able to rent it out and still have positive cash flow. Yeah. And that's the key thing. You can only do that if you can have positive cash flow at the end of the day. Yeah, you started with the end of mind. The the cost of the financing yeah. made made sense because the I, rent would cover it plus exactly. some. Yeah. So I was still able to create positive cash flow even though I was borrowing money on a credit card because I was buying the house so cheaply and I still could rent it out for enough to pay the credit card and pay myself a little profit. Okay. So I didn't know you, I, I knew you were a stay at home mom. So you were doing the real estate while you were a stay at home mom too. Or? Absolutely. Because That's awesome. this is what I decided. Hold on. I want, I, if you got a crappy excuse, this is your crappy excuse alert, by the way. <laughs> If Vicky Love could have a bunch of kids and go buy real estate on credit cards in Not 1984. A bunch of kids. Just two. <laughs> Just two. Hey. <laughs> two was all I could handle. That's quite a few. That's enough. Yeah. But anyways, okay, so here was my thought. I felt like, you know, if I was working a job outside the home, I would at least get two days off for the weekend. Right. So I felt like as a mom, I should get two days off. So both my mother and my mother-in-law had both been homemakers their entire life. They didn't have careers. So the children went to my mother on Mondays. And my mother-in-law on Thursday, so I had two days off a week to work the real estate. So I had two days that I set aside for working the real estate deals. That would not be days off, by the way, Vicky. That would no, be two days. additional work days. I know, but for me, it was days off from dealing with children. That's true. That's true. <laughs> children can be very demanding, yeah. especially when they're young. <laughs> so you said there's two days for Vicky. It was two days Vicky for what Vicky go wanted buy to some do. Real estate. Yeah, two days for what Vicky <laughs> wanted to do, rather than what the children wanted me to do. <laughs> so after the you, you finally get so you bought it for six. Do you remember how much you put into it that first one? Couple grand. Sling I'm thinking maybe about three. Yeah, yeah. Maybe about three grand. How much did it rent for in $1984? Oh, geez. I think it only rented for like $350 or $400. Still cash flowed? And it's still cash flowed. Yeah. Man. Yeah, don't whine about the interest rates either. Yeah, I didn't whine about the interest rates. I didn't care. No. You no, know, because back then they would seem have like low. A like you could pay, I think that the monthly payment was like, you know, you pay like 2% of the monthly. So if you if you borrowed six grand or eight grand, it was like $160. Mm-hmm. So I still was making a little bit of cash flow off of that. Absolutely. Yeah. When did number two come along? The second house? Yeah. Oh, geez. You keep asking me about these houses from the eighties. Why don't we move up to the ones I bought in the I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I don't the I love one. that you were having kids and, and staying home and buying houses in Detroit on credit cards. I love that. So <laughs> I'm gonna that, talk so about that's what you want to talk about. For a little while anyway. That is so funny. You you running RDI, I literally get thousands of excuses every month why yeah. somebody can't do something. So oh, whenever okay. I I want to talk about this, that yeah. they need to know what's possible. It's possible, yeah. You yeah. just have to I think the main thing you have to do is you have to confront your fears and just go out there and do it. Because, I mean, and I will say this, because now I've probably done about 50 deals or so, different types of deals. Every deal I do, I'm still afraid when I first 
sign that contract. Like, Lord, am I going to lose my shirt? You know? <laughs> but so there's always a level of fear. And I don't think that fear ever goes away. You just got to learn how to do it, even though you're still afraid. Mm. And so, um, but anyways, I think that bought the second one. I bought one in 1984. Um, oh, and then in 85, because we bought that first one in 84, and then we got broke into it. And in 85, we moved to suburbs. So the second house was the house we lived in in Detroit. Uh-huh. We converted that one to a rental. And then I think I bought... Um, in 86, I know I bought another one. Um, I may have bought two in 87 or something like that. I was this is all one. on credit cards. This is all on credit cards. You're and raising two kids at the same time. You're raising yep. two kids, you know. Yeah. You know, my son was born in 86. Yeah, and so and the, my daughter was born in 1990. So by the time my daughter was born in 1990, I think I bought maybe two more then. And that was the last ones I bought. So I ended up with, at that time I had six single family homes and three, two family flats. Mm. And then I, then as after my daughter was born in 1990, I really was realizing how difficult it was to do all of this, especially since I was trying to do all the work myself, that the concept of hiring someone to do the work for me didn't fit into my head you're handy vicky you're like doing all the rehab too huh <laughs> yeah well the doing the rehab and raising two children two small children who are you got to chase around the house did you after sleep? while i was tired yeah i was gonna say did, <laughs> just gave up on sleep for a decade yeah, I, was I don't tired. need sleep <laughs> i was tired so yeah. and i didn't i didn't think well and then i also had issues so i, I sold everything by 1996 i sold everything but part of the reason why i sold it was because i was tired with trying to do everything and i didn't conceive in my mind of having someone else do it for me. But the other thing was I was tired of dealing with the city of Detroit and their inspection department. Mm. And um, that was, that was a whole nother issue. Yeah. That didn't change. <laughs> yeah. That ain't changed. So, <laughs> so that became frustrating for me as well. So then I decided, so why don't I just sell all of these? And, and um, I was starting to get interested in, you know, I, I, I started to get interested in the mortgage field. So I said, well, why don't I, you know, get out of this and transition into mortgages. So that's what I did. Okay. Um, do you, do you remember if you made a profit when you sold all your I made a profit on every single house that I sold. Um, the lowest profit I made was probably about five grand. Um, some of them I made 15 to 18,000. And as a matter of fact, um, you know, when I was start off selling them, we were just using the money to pay household expenses. But by the time I sold like the last two or three, I'd already gotten into the mortgage field and so I didn't need the profit. So then I just socked it into the stock market and put it in a mutual fund. And that's, I saved that money up. And that's what ended up helping to pay for my kids' college education. Oh, and that's real estate to college education. Real right? estate to college education. So it worked. And I'm like, you know, even though it was all Detroit and the I didn't make a huge amount of profit on these deals, but hey, it helped put my kids through college. And that's why I said, you know, when I saw the economy going down in 2006, I said, Hey, this would be a great opportunity. When I started going further down in 2008, I'm like, if I don't buy houses now, I'm going to kick myself in 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was, I saw the prices in 2006 were back down to what they were in 1984 when I started to begin with. Whole new cycle. It was a whole new cycle. And I said, if I don't buy now, I'm going to forever regret this. So I just threw caution to the wind and every money I could find, I just threw into real estate. That's impressive. It was it was crazy, but I I'm so glad I did. Heck yeah, you're doing all right. I'm doing okay. Yeah, it looked good too. Thank so, you. <laughs> what was it about the mortgages that attracted you to? Um, um, I've always been a financial person as well. I I got a lot of like 
key things I like. Like I like to write. I like managing money. That's why I wrote these books too, because I like managing money and then I like real estate, you know, and I like the Bible. Those are about the only four things I'm interested in. That's it. That's all Vicky's interested in. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I've always liked managing like just the household budget. And even though, uh, and my husband trusts me completely to the point where he gives me his whole paycheck. Probably why we've been married. So smart man. Smart man. He's he's done well by you, I think. He's done well by me. He's done well. (laughs) Making money. Making money. So he likes making the money. I manage the money. And um, I've been an investor in real estate, but I've also been an investor in the stock market for over 30 years. I invest in mutual funds. I'm always analyzing that. And so the mortgage industry piqued my interest because I like the finance thing. Okay. And when my, now, okay, here's another thing I was doing. I've always been multitasking, right? So while my kids were young and I'm managing real estate, I also went back to school part-time in the evenings, two nights a week I was in college and I earned my MBA degree in finance. I didn't know that. Why didn't you put that in the, um, I don't know. I can't put everything about that's my life true. You there. have done a lot. <laughs> Sorry. You, uh, you apparently you also have a master's so I have an MBA in finance. So, yeah. After I, I got my MBA, um, I wanted to do something to use that. I felt like I should at least use this degree that I just paid for. So I felt the mortgage industry would kind of use that that MBA degree. You, so that's when I, went to that. I didn't real. I mean, I've known you for a little while, and I know you've been driven, but I didn't realize how driven you were. <laughs> were you? Do you remember always being this driven, or was your dad or mom this driven, or did you become this driven? I. I, as I look at myself, I will say what motivates me is a sense of achievement. And that's what's always motivated me my entire life. When I was a child, I was always motivated to achieve in school. So I always, I was the kid who always got straight A's. So I would get straight A's or all A's and one B. And, you know, I was the kid in college who everybody in the classroom didn't like because I would blow the curve, you know, and the professor grade on the curve. Good. You get one person who gets 100%. That everybody else gets 70 and below. The one person gets an A and everybody else get a B, C, whatever. They would say, who got that 100%? I mean, uh, that was me. <laughs> I would have said, good. You should be used to disappointment if that's what you care about. Yeah, you know? so I've always been motivated by achievement, by feeling like I'm doing my best and pushing myself to do even better. So mm. it's like I'm self-motivated to to just achieve something in life and to feel like I'm accomplishing something and making a difference. that That's what motivates me. Do you think you were born that way or did your parents or grandparents instill that in you? Or was that part of the community back then? Or I, I don't, if you don't know, you don't know. I'm just curious. Um, I, I think it was a combination of things, a combination of my mother was always very uh, supportive of me and always encouraging me to do my best. And then, like I said, I grew up going to church and the church that I went to down the street is like I had a lot of surrogate mothers and fathers there who were always, they were always, that church was very good in that it was always focused on the young people and the, and encouraging them to, as they said, stay on the straight and narrow path. But they were always encouraging us to do the right thing. Yeah. And so that was always good that I always had these people around me always encouraging me too. So that helped. Well, I wonder what happened to Detroit churches since then. I don't know. Steady fall. That's another story. I'm not saying all of them because I've not, not been to all of them. There's I'm sure good, there's some good ones. There's right? still some yes, good ones yes, out yes, there, but it is it is a challenge. It's a challenge now with churches too because 
now you before we had community. So everybody who went to church also lived with each other because we all lived in the same neighborhood. So now people don't necessarily go to church where they live at. That's true. I noticed that. They come yeah. from everywhere, they right? They come from everywhere. So yeah. the whole sense of community, I think, is what's part of what's lost in a lot of the churches today. So we're going to blame this on the car and the suburbs. No, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> but I didn't think about it like that. You're right. You used to live around the church mm-hmm. and you would walk or take the short drive. Mm-hmm. Last couple of times I went to church, people are driving from 45 minutes away. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I hadn't thought about it like yeah, that. Yeah, but you don't have necessarily the relationship outside of church to keep motivating one another to live what you believe. Yeah, you see them one Sunday. You see them one Sunday. Whereas we all lived in the same neighborhood. We saw each other throughout the week, too. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So you decided, <laughs> apparently I'm going to do houses and I'm going to raise two kids and I'm going to go get my master's. <laughs> And then I'm going to start or get into you get into the mortgage business. Did you start your own mortgage? Or? I did. Yeah. Well, I started off working for other mortgage companies. So I ended up working for five different mortgage companies. And then I eventually started my own because, you know, I felt like I could do it better than all these people. But. Probably could. Right. <laughs> but did you? Uh, I thought I did pretty good. Yeah, I, I did so pretty too, good, yeah. except when the economy crashed in 2008 and I was a mortgage broker. So, of course, I didn't loan my own money. I loaned the lenders money. I had 30 different lenders. And when the economy crashed from 2006 to 2008, of the 30 lenders, 28 of them either went out of business or quit work, working with brokers. So, in essence, I got put out of business because I didn't have any more money to loan. Yeah. So. Well, no, no more brokers. I mean, there's brokers are kind of like... Um, I don't know, endangered species, right? There's like yeah. 10 left. And- yeah, exactly. <laughs> they didn't, they didn't, they pretty much when the economy crashed, they needed someone to blame. They blamed the brokers yeah. and they blamed the appraisers. And a lot of appraisers ended up out of business. A lot of brokers ended up out of business. And so it was what it was. I mourned the loss. I moved on and said, okay, I'm just going to focus on the real estate. Okay. Yeah. How, so when you're working to learn and you're opening your, your mortgage business, um, what were some of the things that, I mean, I know it was easy for a period of time, but um, what were some of the things you had to do to make your mortgage business um, successful? I don't know. Did you have to hire employees or? Um, mostly with mortgages, you're, um, I, I always focused on having a small operation because I didn't want to be like a big, huge company. So I just had a, I would have, at one point I had like seven loan officers working for me. That was the most. Uh, usually I might have one or two working for me. Um, but mostly I focused on the business that I had. And since I, by the time I, um, started my mortgage company, I had already been doing mortgages for like, I think seven years. And so I had established a client base of people who, um, would come to me if they needed a mortgage. And I was always constantly marketing people because, you know, people move every two to five years. So I was always marketing. I would send out, again, I like to write. So when I had my mortgage, when I was in the mortgage industry, period, I would always send out a quarterly newsletter to people. So I was always keeping contact with my past clients. They would refer me business. I got referrals or they would come back to me if they needed my services again. Then I would network with other professionals like real estate agents or uh, financial planners, if their clients needed a mortgage. So um, I just, you know, you had to market, do all sorts of things, you know, to try to get deals. Well, I know you went to like RIAs and other meetings because that's how I met you. I think I, 
think I met you at Dollars, didn't I? Was it Dollars I first met you at? Or? No, I think it was. Um, I, can't, I don't know if I remember. It was uh, WCRT Detroit. That's right. Back when it was Jared's meeting. Back still. when it was Jared's yeah. meeting. Yeah, it yeah. was WCRT Detroit. That's Windy City Roundtable Detroit for those yes. listening. Why yeah. Jared named it that, who knows? Well, yeah. he, he was an affiliate of the one yeah. that was from Chicago. That's right. Yeah, there was one in Chicago and he was affiliate of theirs. They had a they nasty had falling out too, by the way. Yeah, I know. We don't want to put that on recording. We don't talk about that one. <laughs> I'm not going to go into details. Don't go into the details. It wasn't pretty, and both were pretty petty, actually. Uh, it, it got nasty. Okay, I thought... Did you go to the dollars meeting? I, I never went up? to the dollars You never meeting. went to dollars. I never went to dollars. No, I we made went. that up. Yeah, you, That's my brain. You, just in your, yeah, in your head, you thought that. But it was yeah. WCRT is where we met at. That's why I need to write more stuff down so I remember <laughs> it instead of pretending. So. Yeah, so, but I was, you know, there was a period of time where I was doing both the, the rentals and the mortgages, you know, while I was transition, transitioning from one to the other. And then after the mortgages was dying down, I said, oh. So I'm transitioning out of mortgages and back to rentals, or back to real estate. So investing. you didn't get hurt so when the mortgage and the real estate industry crashed, right? You did okay? I Well, of course, everybody suffered. Yeah, well, there was suffering to go <laughs> there around. There was suffering yeah. for everybody. I mean, I at that time, I had a lot of money in the stock market. You know where that went, right? Oh, yeah. Down Don't. the toilet. Yeah. So, and, um, and then I did start back buying rentals. Uh, the first rental I bought was August of 2006. So that was before everything went all the way down. Yeah. So that particular house and the one I bought in, I think, June of 2007, those two houses are right now. Uh, I paid more for them than what they're worth. But I got tenants in there who are paying me rent and it's cash flowing. So I don't care because in, by the time I sell it, it'll be worth what I needed to be when for me to sell it. So in the short term, if it's upside down, it doesn't matter as long as I'm making positive cash flow. You know, there's a, you probably know it better than I forget. What is it? Uh, where you buy cost averaging, right? Cost oh, averaging. Dollar cost averaging. Dollar cost averaging. Yes. Thank you. You actually went to school for that stuff. Dollar cost averaging. <laughs> you have a bunch of rentals. You have a few that are upside down. Doesn't matter. Plus the cash flow, right? Yeah, exactly. So I okay. just have a couple that are upside down and then all the rest of them are, um, are pretty, straight. So I want to come back to what you said, because I like what you said. If you don't buy real estate now, you'll regret it forever. Yeah, that's what I told myself in 2006. When I saw it going down, I said, boy, if you don't start buying houses now, you are going to regret this years to come. And so I just threw caution to the wind and found money. You know, I cashed in money in the stock market that was I cashed in. Fortunately, I cashed in this one investment fund I had before the market crashed in 2008. In 2007, I cashed that one. And I was like, yay. And then 2000, I'm like, hey, I just made money because I didn't lose it on that one and bought a house. And then I cashed in some others that crashed in 2008. So I took a lot of money out the stock market and um, I just started buying houses. And initially what I did, um, the home that my husband and I were living in um, at that time, we had almost paid for. And so we, before the market crashed, we got a home equity line of credit on that. And that was how we bought our first house back in 2006. We bought it with the home equity line of credit. And then I rehabbed it. I was still in the mortgage industry at that time. And that was before the whole mortgage industry crashed. And so at that time, I could buy it, fix it up, and then immediately refinance it, pull my money back out. And then I bought the second one and the third one and the fourth one and did that same exact thing. So I ended up with four with mortgages on them. And then, um, you know, 
and had pulled the cash back out that I had put into them, but I had them as they were rentals so that I could cash. They were cash flow. And then, um, and then after the market crash in 2008, you couldn't do that anymore, but I still had that home equity line of credit. And then the prices of homes had come down so much that with that home equity line of credit, I was able to buy three more houses. I just left that. So now I still got that home equity line of credit. I just pay interest only on that. And I'm just going to keep that because three houses are paying for that and got more cash flow. And then from there, um, now I had, I don't know, maybe about six houses or so. And I've got a little cash flow coming in. Well, I started doing a combination of things to continue buying houses. I would, I would again buy some houses with credit cards. <laughs> you know, credit cards have not figured me out yet. I feel like the credit card companies—they all try You're too to, smart for them. <laughs> they all try to get you ensnared in credit card. They try debt, really hard, yeah. And they want you to pay these high interest rates and blah blah blah. And so my husband and I always have excellent credit. So um, I remember sitting in one of the houses and and they sent me a thing in the mail for one of my credit cards that I had a zero balance on, but I had a $30,000 limit on. And they sent me a thing in the mail saying, um, you could get a, uh, write the, you know, these checks and you could write this. That's how we did it to start. And it's a, you know, 3% transaction fee. And they even, it was like a 3% transaction fee, but it was a maximum they put on it. It was like a maximum of $200. They didn't even say, they didn't put a minimum or, or 3%. It was 3% or a maximum of $300. That's or something. basically free money. Yeah. And so I couldn't believe what I was reading. So I called him on the phone. I said, are you telling me that I could access my whole $30,000 limit and pay a transaction fee of a maximum of $300? Oh yeah, you can. And it's 0% for six months. And then after that, you know, it goes to whatever the interest rate is. I'm like, okay, I just wanted to make sure I was good. And I could write a check to myself for that if I want to. Oh yeah, you can do that. Okay, no problem. Write that check real quick before they change their mind. (laughs) And I put that 30,000 in the bank and put it along with a little bit of money I already had and bought the next one. And then I fixed it up and then, you know, and was able to, that was, you know, when I could still refinance, refinance paid that 30000 off before the, uh, the interest rate changed. Yeah, they, they don't like that. They don't like that. And yeah. then they didn't offer that offer to me ever again. That this particular lady, company then. Yeah. <laughs> but You're now I got other trapped. ones that do. Now I got other ones that, that do the same thing. So I, you know, I pit, you know, Chase against Bank of America, you know, back and forth. I feel like, hey. Those big guys got lots of money. Heck yeah, they got our money. They got our money. So they they can give me some 0% loans for a while. Absolutely. Especially you got good credit. I got great credit. They always get paid. But I use it to buy houses and I make sure I pay them off before the 0% interest ends. And if if I don't have the money, then I'll just transfer it to another one for 0% interest until I can pay them off. Hey, it works. They anyway. were hoping you'd go on vacation or something. They were or hoping buy I'd buy a car yeah. or a fur coat or something. And I ain't got time no, for that. You're like, I got a plan with this money. I got a plan <laughs> for the money. So I'm using the bank's money. Uh, they want to entrap me. I'm using it to create my wealth. Somewhere along the line, though, that ran out too, right? And you came up with this idea or challenge or a goal, however you want to state it, where mm-hmm. you wanted 20 mm-hmm. free and clear yes. houses. So how, do, how did that transition or where that goal come from um well what at some point in in my um career um actually it was in 2010 
So I'd been doing it now for about four years. I think at that point I had um, eight or nine rental properties and I was buying them so fast, but I wasn't um, necessarily uh, getting them all up and running as quickly as I should. I went to a boot camp with uh, Vena Jones Cox down in Ohio. I don't know if you heard of her in Cincinnati. And uh, she does wholesaling. And um, I had gone to a lot of boot camps and a lot of different people had offered you know, um, to become your, your mentor or whatever. And they all have these programs where they want to charge you a lot of money to be your mentor. But Vina had a program and, um, it's called a fast track program and, um, cost about $10,000. was a lot of money, but, um, the initial exercise that she had us have us do as a fast tracker is like a five or six page questionnaire where you pretty much are like, looking at your whole life goals or what you want to accomplish and why you want to accomplish it, not just with the real estate, but what is the real estate going to afford you to do? Like if you had 10 places you wanted to visit on vacation, where would it be? If you had 10 charities you wanted to give money to, which charities would you give to? If you had 10 uh, bigger than life things that you wanted to be able to accomplish, what would you do? And then from there, what, what, um, then she focused in on the real estate what real estate do you want to do? Do you want to focus on wholesaling? In other words, a lot of times you can go to a lot of different workshops and a lot of different boot camps and you end up knowing how to wholesale, how to retail, how to do lease options, how to do rentals, how to do private lending. And you end up scatterbrained because you're all over the place. And one thing she really helped me to do was to focus. What do I want to do? And so I focused and I said, well, you know, really, I like doing the rentals. Um, so I really want to focus on rentals. And that's when I set the goal. I want to have 20 rentals free and clear. Um, and that that would fund, you know, my lifestyle that I've grown accustomed to. And then, um, also just to do some wholesaling, but do that like on the side, just to help to pay off some of the rentals that that's, it's like a two part goal. Mm. The way you get to it is you got to, you want the rentals, but you got to have some way to create big cash yes. so you can pay off the rentals. Yes. So that's where I really crystallized that goal was when I was working with her um, in her fast track program and and put that together. And then um, at that time, she doesn't do it now, but at that time she had an accountability where she would call you every two weeks. She would call you and had a, you had a 20 minute conversation with her where she would say, okay, you're supposed to do this, this and this. What have you done? And so that that really helped me to focus my activities toward reaching the goal that I wanted to reach, you know. And so and that that every two weeks was like a five month period where she was calling me every two weeks. And that really helped me to get more discipline in what I was going to do and and then really get it done. Accountability. <laughs> that really matters sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially in real estate, especially when you're an entrepreneur. And, you know, when you're when you're employed by someone, you got a boss that's telling you what to do, looking over your shoulder, giving you some sort of uh, feedback and, you know, response on what you're doing. But when you're self-employed and you work by yourself, you got to hold yourself accountable or you got to find someone else to hold you accountable. So I needed that at that period of time. I needed her to be account to be accountable to so that she could help me to get more focused in what I wanted my real estate career to be like and what goals I really wanted to accomplish. I feel like me, especially in the beginning, I, I really needed that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I ignored it, you know, because mm-hmm. I was young and dumb and stupid. Right. But I think that's a lot of people. They have that exactly. problem. Right. They, I think a lot of people, have, especially in the real estate investing, because it's so much information out there and you learn so much, but you end up 
um, with paralysis of analysis because you got too much information and you don't know where to start. So if you have someone that you can um, be accountable to, to say, uh, this is what you, you set a goal. This is the goal I want to reach. And then these are the activities I need to do to accomplish that goal. And then you have someone to, to hold you accountable, say you're going to do this, this, and this in the next two weeks. What well, did you do it? And if you, you didn't, why not? You know? So, and that's the thing you need someone to keep you focused on what it is you say you want to do so that you get toward that goal. I kind of did the opposite. I worked 18 hours a day with no clear plan or structure. So I don't know which one's worse, not doing anything or just wasting all that youthful energy just out there to to nothingness. Yeah, I was very busy and not very effective. But not very effective. Yeah, that was a problem. I could have really used that exercise where I sat down and thought about what I really wanted. I'm going to do all the deals. And I just ran out there. Yeah. Yeah. So that exercise I thought was very, very critical in terms of getting me focused. It really helped me. Yeah. Accountability, man. That that's really, if you're listening at home, one of the things I like to say is if, if you're not currently accountable at your job too, if you're not the person, if you're not the go-to person at your job, before you go and start a business or buy real estate, become the person that everybody respects at work first. Mm-hmm. And then I think maybe you stand a better chance of going out on your own. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what Absolutely. I would say. So yeah. if I go back and do it differently, I, I would probably do it that way. So, Absolutely. but apparently I had to go learn it all the hard way. So <laughs> here we are 2016 at some point, I think you had 15 minutes or something and you're like, what am I going to do with this 15 minutes that, and you decided I'm going to write some books. So correct me if I'm wrong. Stop robbing Peter to pay Paul was, this was the first book. That was the first book. And actually I wrote that book. When did I write this book? I wrote this book. It originally came out in 2003 and, um, it actually took me, um, three years to write the book. Wow. Although I'd been thinking about it for probably 15 years. But um, one thing that I do, I, I you mentioned earlier that my husband and I are pastors of a church. And I've been involved in church my whole life. But I also have been teaching at churches um, throughout the metropolitan area. And I've also done some outstate as well on managing your money from a Christian perspective from a biblical perspective, I've been teaching like little workshops and stuff like that along, along the way throughout the years as well. You know, so I found myself in teaching those workshops. I was always saying the same thing. And then when I was doing mortgages for people and they sit across the table from me and I noticed they had bad credit and I was giving them advice on how to clean up their credit and how to, you know, stick with a budget so that they could qualify to buy the house they wanted to buy. I was giving them the same advice. So finally, at some point, it's like, I need to put this into a book. Yeah, because you don't have to say it. I don't have to keep saying the same thing. I said, here, just read the book. Yeah. So so that's what I did. I put everything into this book. And um, and like I said, it took me three years to write it because I was doing all that other stuff at yeah. the same time. So, you know, I just 15 thought, minutes at a whack. That could take yeah, a while. 15 minutes at a whack. Or, you know, every now and then I'd spend a Saturday morning and give it a couple hours. And then I finally got it all together and it, and it came together into a book. Well, I like this book. Yes. It's an ex- I think it's an excellent book. It's simple. It's not difficult to read. And I feel like our president, any of the presidents, mm. all of them, mm. as far back as I could remember, should read this. Everybody in Congress should read this. Stop right. robbing Peter to pay Paul. What hey, a great so, title. So that's too. what I came up so. with because everybody I've ever met has been robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yes. <laughs> Government, like every city, Government. every county, every yes. state, the Fed, like every... 
even some businesses, uh, some of the airlines haven't made money in 30 years. Like, how does this keep? Yeah. How do you stay in business? How does this keep going? You know, I just, it it doesn't make any sense to me. So break down what, you know, and we don't have a time limit, but what is stop robbing Peter to pay Paul? They probably got guests already a little bit, but. Um, it's a Bible-based book, and what it does is it's broken down into three sections. The subtitle is the ABCs of Financial Victory. So A stands for attitude, and what it deals with is that your attitude towards money. Um, a lot of times people are motivated to spend money based on some internal thing that's going on inside of them that they haven't resolved. So a lot of times, like like I mentioned various things in here, like one of the things is low self-esteem or keeping up with the Joneses or control tactics. You know, if if you're motivated by one of these negative things, it's going to cause you to misspend your money or overspend your money because you're trying to use money to solve a problem that's really internal rather than external. And so once you get your attitude, and then, of course, it's Bible-based, so I, I deal with all the, the biblical principles of managing money and how you can change your thinking towards uh, you know, more Christian principles for managing money and, and, you know, just keeping God first in your finances and all of that. And once you change your attitude about money, then you can look at a budget. That's what the B stands for. And budgeting deals with um, how to set up a budget, how to stick with a budget, how to clean up your credit. And all of those things, I have worksheets in here that people can use to set up a budget, have a worksheet for how to get out of debt, deal with the credit scores and what they mean and how they come up with it and how you can improve your credit. And then the C in the book stands for contentment. After you have the right attitude, you set up a budget, learn to live within your means. Then you have contentment in your finances, as opposed to most people who are have frustration in their finances. So that's what it is in a nutshell. I think, I think it's excellent. And I would go as far as say, even if you're not Christian, it's an excellent book. Like nothing, it's just an excellent, simple book. It's not in any highfalutin language or anything like right, that. Yeah. It's straightforward. Yeah, I tried to write it so anybody could read it and just pick it anybody up and put it, it and put it into practice in your life so that you can just just learn how to live within your means. If most people would learn how to live within their means and set a financial goal, you know, even if they don't do real estate, they will be better off if they just set a financial goal for what they want their money to accomplish, as opposed to what most people do. Most people get their paycheck. The money falls through their fingers. They have no idea where it went. And at the end of the month, they got more month than they have money. And yeah. they're trying to figure out where the money went. Yep. So and they have no clue. And they have no clue. That was clue. me for years. They have no clue. No clue. Where did so, it go? I, I thought I had. I thought I had some left over. It disappeared. Yes. Somebody's happy with it. I spent it, but where did yes. it go? And our, our automated society does not help because now people use a debit card. People just go and swipe here, swipe there, swipe there. And they have no idea where their money went. No one gets a bank statement anymore no one's balancing their checkbook and so you have no idea where your money went and why would you I, balance your checkbook yeah i still balance my checkbook every of single course you month should. Of course you should. <laughs> everyone should that is a good point as cash disappears it yeah. does seem easier to it's easier to not know where it's yeah swiping a card makes it easier for you not to know where your money's going. You have to almost, you have to be more disciplined now exactly. and track closer because you don't have a pocket full of cash and when it's gone, it's gone. Right, you know? right. So uh, that's, you know, I think this is half of what's wrong with Detroit too, including government. Like nobody ever sat down and said, look, 
you're going to want to do some things that are stupid. Mm-hmm. We're going to let's talk about why you want to do these things. Yeah. Let's create some goal. You know, like just what that book said. And then maybe you can do something different. Exactly. Once but, you set a goal, then you can have focus towards your activities and, and really, you know, you feel good when you set a financial goal and you achieve a financial goal. One of the stories I tell in my book was about my son. When my son was like uh, 10 or 11 years old, he kept coming to me wanting money. And I'm like, I'm not giving you money. You need to go get a job. Yes, I told my <laughs> 10 or 11-year-old to go get a job. You know, you know these liberals, they would, they would call you some sort of abusive parent. You know? No. no this, I feel like exactly right. my goal as a parent was to train my children yes. to be responsible, productive adults who, and my definition of adult, which I told them over and over again, my definition of adult, you're, it's not an age. You're not an adult when you're 18. You're an adult when you're both out my house and out my pocketbook. <laughs> so I had to train my son starting at 10, you need to go get a job. So his first job was a paper route, which really meant mom and dad had a paper route because you're not in this day and age going to let your child just go with a wagon and yeah, deliver papers. Yeah. So we drove him in the minivan and he went... I got out the side of the minivan and delivered his papers, but that's another you story. You make him pay for the gas? No, we that didn't. Was nice of you. That but was nice of you. um but he made his money and he was only making, I don't know, forty, fifty dollars a month. It wasn't that much money. And but he wanted to spend it all on video games and, you know, designer gym shoes and designer shirts. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you have to put fifty percent of your money in the bank and you have to give ten percent of your money to church. And you're only allowed to spend 40% of your money. So you can spend 40% on whatever you want, but you had to, he had to save 50% of the money. It's like, why I got to save? You know, he's arguing. But I said, here's the thing. At some point, you're 10 now. I said, when you get to be 16, you're going to want to buy a car. He was like, I don't want to buy a car. I said, you will when you get to be 16. Yes, you will. So he had, I made him save 50% of his money. When he got to be 13, he got a better job. He was a caddy at the country club. And, you know, they give them some nice tips. Heck yeah. Oh, yeah. He was getting, he had this one lady he had a caddy for. She said, every time I get on the green on my first stroke, I'm going to give you $20. So he's collecting $20 bills all day. So he making more money. I still made him save 50% of his money. By the time he was 16 years old, he had $2,500 in the bank. I know a lot of adults don't have $2,500 in yes. the bank. Yes. But he a learned lot, something like 70% of Americans don't have. <laughs> so my son learned this great concept that if you set a goal and you, you save for it and you become disciplined toward you reach that goal. And so he had enough money to buy. It was a used car. He put in half. We put in the other half. The other half we didn't give to him. We made a loan to him. We had him sign a contract that he was going to pay us back. It was 0% interest, but he had to pay it back, pay us back. This was the payment plan, and he had to pay it off in three years. And um, he stuck with that payment plan, but he was so proud of himself. As he should be. That he had done this, and he was bragging to all his friends and his teachers, I bought my own car. Heck yeah, he should be proud of that. Yeah, Yeah, but you know, and... You know, he learned how to manage money, but I think that's a responsibility to teach your children how to manage money so that, you know, now he's an adult. Now he's 29 years old. He's an adult for real. He pays his own bills. Mom ain't paying his bills. He's living in his own house. That's what you want. Yeah, probably still saving money. Still saving yeah. money. In fact, he's bragging us how much money he got in the bank now. <laughs> that's That's the way it should be. I don't know. I don't know where it went wrong. It, it did somewhere. Maybe it's always been wrong, right? It just yeah. never, never seemed right. At some point, though, you're like, you know what? I need to write another book. 
<laughs> I did. So you're right. Changing your money mindset. 21 days to a more prosperous life. Okay. Let, let's talk about that. When did you write this book? Okay, this book came out in 2009. And um, after the first book came out, which deals with the basics of setting up a budget, um, I realized that a lot of people um, that I talk with, they want prosperity. They want wealth. They want to do well. But they have a mindset that is geared toward poverty yes. and lack and Let's talk not about that. Getting, uh, not being successful. I, I admit that for periods of my life, I succumb to some of this thinking, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's easy to do. So, so let's talk about it. What are some of the mindsets that are poverty mindsets? Um, I would say some of the poverty mindset is um, just hanging around with the wrong people yeah. is part of your poverty mindset. Um, part of the poverty mindset is just not believing that it's possible for me to do it. You know, feeling like you're not good enough or you're not worthy or whatever. Um, part of the poverty mindset, I think, is thinking that it should be easy or that you should get rich quick because anything that you want in terms of wealth and success is going to require some work. It's going to require a effort. A lot of work. A lot of work. A lot of effort. A lot of sacrifice. A lifetime of work for you yeah, to be where you're lifetime. at, right? It's been a lifetime of work for me to get to where I'm at. It takes discipline. And so part of that poverty mindset is really... Um, continually telling yourself negative, negative things, you know, like, you know, you, you have things, sometimes people say things like I'm broke and I'll always be broke. You know, you say things that are negative. And I think that the, the words that you say about yourself help to create your reality. Because if you keep saying that I'm broke and I will always be broke, then guess what? You will always be broke. Well, yeah. I wonder <laughs> I wonder why people do that. Yeah, and some people do. Yeah. And that's part of that poverty mindset. And then hanging around negative people. I well remember way back in the 80s, again, when I first was wanting to get into real estate and went to that Tom Vu. And I shared it with a friend of mine. That I wanted to, you know, buy real estate, and I, you know, and I then I got the Robert Allen no money down or something buy real estate with no money down, and first thing you can't do that. That's not possible. Oh, and if wow. you get a rental property, it's gonna, you know, you know, the tenants gonna tear it up. They're gonna destroy it and blah blah blah. And if I had listened to that friend and been discouraged, I would never have done it. But one thing I realized is that I couldn't share my goals anymore with that person. Yeah. Didn't mean they, they were no longer my friend or I didn't care for them anymore, but they're not the person I talked to about real estate. And so, because they got a poverty mindset, all they can see is lack and they can see destruction. Whereas I look at it and say, I see opportunity. And so when I, I decided I wasn't going to share with them anymore. And I heard someone say once, you have to be real careful who you share your goals with your give up goals. You can share with anyone. I'm going to give up smoking. I'm going to give up drinking. I'm going to give up, you know, rebel rousing or whatever. <laughs> you can share those things with anybody. But your go-up goals, you be very careful who you share with. Because if you say you want to go out and create a million-dollar real estate portfolio, there's going to be a lot of naysayers saying you can't do that. And so you have to be real careful who you share that goal with. So just be careful who you share goals with because not everyone has the same kind of mindset. And people with that poverty mindset are going to try to knock you down and keep you down. And so... You know, you don't want to hang around those people. Yeah, I call that the the crabs in the bucket. Exactly. Yeah, start, same thing. They don't want you crawling out. They don't that, want you crawling out. So they're trying to pull you back down. I almost think it's oh, they can, 
that means I can, but if, but I have to take responsibility. So no, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to do that. Get back right. down here. That's I've been, cl- I've been trying the last two years to clean up my friend circle. That's actually what led to my second downfall. Mm. Partnering with the wrong people. Oh yes. That can, that can hurt you too. Evil people. The, the, oh man. You just, that you really got to be careful. You have to be very careful. Even if you're a good person, you can make these mistakes. And, exactly. it, and it's really, you can, I'm still paying for it. Yeah. Yeah. Six years later, yeah. I, it'll probably be another five years before I'm done. Before you finally clean Bef- up everything. Yes. And that is the thing. You have to be careful in this business and real estate who you partner with yeah. because not everyone has the same level of, of integrity that you have. Yeah. And um, I've been burned on some deals too, partnering with someone who turned out to be you know, a little bit lacking in integrity. But mostly I try to do deals on my own for that very reason. Yes. Because, you know, I'm afraid of someone else's lack of integrity causing me to lose money. Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a big one. Also, I like how you point out not thinking it's possible. It's one of the things I hate about mm-hmm. politics, especially as I get older. Mm-hmm. It, it, politics seems more and more like professional victimhood. And mm-hmm. I, I'm really concerned about the number of people hearing what they can't do because of somebody else. Wow. Even if it's true, and I know it's true for some number of people, mm. um, I just don't understand why people go around doing this. Mm. Like, this is what poor people need to hear. This is what people in, in bad situations, you can't make it. Mm. You can't do it. And then we wonder why they don't. It's very, it's, mm. it's very unnerving to me. And yeah. I like it. Why, why can't you do it? Yeah, why can't you do it? Why can't you do it? Why can't you do it? You absolutely can do it. And you have to, and that's why I did this book, Changing Your Mindset, because I believe you have to change your thinking to believe that you can do it before you will ever see it manifested in your pocketbook. So if you don't change your thought pattern to say, I can do this, this is possible, you'll never go out there and actually create that success that you want. Well, I've seen it recently a lot with, oh, God, she's going to hate me talking about this. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. I don't know how much she listens. I'm really proud of her. My sister got a divorce a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. She married a not-so-good person, mm-hmm. um, had a kid, all that. Anyway, we had a rough childhood, too, not mm-hmm. the best. Mm-hmm. Didn't think she could really do anything or accomplish anything. And then watching her the last two years as she slowly starts to realize, I can do things. Exactly. Now she's in college. She's going through college and she has this van that keeps breaking down and she's like, okay, what do I do? I got to call around. I got to do this. I was like, Hey, relax, go out and actually take a look, get on the internet, buy the book, Mm -hmm. just go take a look. And it sounds terrible. I didn't think she was actually going to fix it, mm. but I wanted her to be, cause she keeps getting taken advantage of by these mechanics who, yeah. you know, people are sleazy. They That's see somebody right. at need, right? She, the two days later, she sent me pictures like, yeah, I figured out what the problem was and I fixed it. She fixed it herself. She did. Awesome. She absolutely fixed it herself. That's awesome. I, I was so proud of her and yeah. her whole attitude changed about absolutely. it too. Yeah. Even if you're in the darkest place possible, mm-hmm. you'd be surprised what you can do. Exactly. She's and never worked on a car in her entire life. That's awesome. Fixed it. Yeah. No problem. Change the spark plug. Wow. Fix some wires yeah. and her car was back up and running. Cool. So cool. now that's a, that's a small example. I was just really proud of her and it came to my head, mm-hmm. but it was a lifetime that she couldn't do these things. Right. Right. I'm not smart enough to go to college. Right. 
right. she's doing well in college. She's doing very well in college, right. you know? And somebody put that thought in her head and she believed it. And so those limiting thoughts is what you have to get rid of. If you want to be successful in real estate or in business or in any endeavor, you have to believe that it's possible before you get started. And then as it gets, even as you're getting into it, it, it you have difficult, rough patches. You got to believe that you can turn it around. You got to believe that you can make it successful in the end because otherwise that you won't be motivated to do what you need to do if you don't believe that it's possible. Well, yeah, if you think you can't do it, you're very likely not to, right? Yeah, you're very likely not to do anything. <laughs> so, so anyways, the second book is about changing your thinking, increasing your faith, developing that mindset to believe that prosperity and wealth is for me, is not just for somebody else, it's for me too. You make some excellent points about patience as well. And oh man, I'm so bad at this. I'm getting better as I get older. Really for me, not having patience was a, is a, it's still a problem today. Mm-hmm. It was really a problem 10 years ago. But when you said you're not going to get rich quick, I really thought I was going to get rich quick. I know it mm-hmm. sounds stupid, Vicky. Mm-hmm. I really thought I was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately I did too. Yeah. That's never good. When you do it once, you think you could do it again. You don't realize mm-hmm. you have like a bad equation or a mm-hmm. bad recipe, right? Exactly. It does take time and discipline to do this and knowing this in advance, even if it's difficult, if you don't know that you're not going to be successful, right? Cause that's what it takes. It does take, it takes time. It takes discipline. It takes hard work. And I think one of the biggest uh, problems we have in the real estate investing industry is a lot of the gurus that get up and speak, um, make it seem like it's easy. It's simple. Just buy my course. It's all done for you. This is a system. You just plug it in and you'll be making money. Make money while you sleep. They make all of these promises which are unrealistic and they don't tell the people who are listening the full picture, which is that uh, the system I created, yes, it might be done for you, but it may not work exactly in your market the way it worked in mine. You still have a learning curve no matter what you do, you can have a learning curve to figure out how it works in your market, how you work doing that particular strategy and, and, and just implementation. It's going to take time. It takes time. It takes discipline. It takes, you know, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes, getting up, doing it over again and doing it better the second time than you did it the first time. And, and just being able to say, um, I'm going to stick with this until I create profit. You know, I had a certain income goal I wanted to reach with my rental properties. And I'm proud to say I've reached my income goal. Excellent. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. So I'm writing myself, I write myself a profit check each and every month. <laughs> and I tell people, you know, you want to be in business, but you're not a successful business owner until after you pay all your expenses at the end of the month, you can write yourself a check for profit. That's a successful business person. Not someone who has a business card that they just ran out, had printed up because they had an idea. They put a business card together and put their name and CEO. Well, what have you sold? Nothing. What have you bought? Nothing. What? Who are your customers? Nobody. Nobody. What, no, don't, don't print up a business card until you have a business. Yeah. That is hilarious. I love it. I never did that. Of all the dumb things, I, I managed to avoid this one. The CEO. I'm like... Come on. Yeah, really. I mean, if it helps, it helps, but... I don't think it helps. No. My business cards, by the way, just say manager. There you go. I'm the owner of the business, but I have on their manager. manager. Why? Because I don't necessarily want... I give that card to my tenants, too. I don't necessarily want them to know that I'm the owner of the business. That's so. a good point, right? So I just put on their manager. I don't have to... No one has to know I'm the owner. I know who's the owner. Mm. <laughs> oh, 
The Patience. You should definitely go read it. Changing your money mindset. And if you go to her her website, they can get it from your website. Too, yeah, they right? can get it from my website, VickiSpringLove.org. And it's Vicky with a Y, V-I-C-K-Y, S-P-R-I-N-G-L-O-V-E dot org. And if you get it from my website, I will actually autograph it for you and uh, send it to you with free shipping. So uh, feel free to go there and, and buy it today. You should. You should. They're they're not expensive. They're excellent books. They're easy to read. Now you said you. I don't know how you got in the stock market. Are you still in the stock market or? Well, yes. Um, in the terms of managing my husband's uh, investments, his four hundred one k. His four hundred one k. Yeah, that's all still in the stock market. So you yet. definitely still lean more towards real estate. Than I lean the stock for market. me, yes. Yeah. I lean more towards real estate than the stock market. But the four hundred one k's, you don't really have the option to put into the. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, well, real estate. Well, I'm just curious because I haven't done anything mm-hmm. and the and the stock market or with 401ks or if mutual funds um but i might have to so i'm i'm curious about it. how do you successfully do that kind of thing i mean i know it's a huge question i don't mm-hmm. i'm not even smart enough to ask the right question <laughs> vicky uh, um, on this kind of thing okay but- for me what i did was um i do research on the mutual funds in terms of and and i'll tell you where I um I like no load mutual funds. So there's a couple of different companies and I'm not giving investment advice disclaimer. This Remember that disclaimer in the beginning? Yeah. Be an um, adult. But there are like Vanguard is a family of no load mutual funds. Uh Fidelity has a family of no load mutual funds. What I've done recently um is that there are people out there who like they spent their whole career analyzing all the Vanguard funds cuz Vanguard by themselves probably have, you know, I don't know couple hundred or a thousand funds and then fidelity's got like thousands of funds so it's hard to pick out one so there's newsletters out there where those particular authors have spent their whole career just analyzing that family of funds and they can make recommendations to you based upon what your uh, goal is what your time frame is you know if you're using it for retirement when do you plan to retire and they make recommendations of which funds will fit your particular investment risk and portfolio goals and all that kind of thing. So that's what I've been doing um, most recently because I don't have time to do all that analysis and everything. Um, but there are other websites you can go to if you want to get um, information is finance.yahoo.com. On yahoo.com, they have a finance section and they actually have reports on there from Morningstar, which is out of Chicago, that analyzes all the mutual funds. And Morningstar gives the mutual funds a uh, rating of one stars to five stars. So obviously, obviously the more stars it has, the better, the better. The, the better. And so you want to look and see what the stars are. Um, you also want to look at um, in terms of what the investment goals is. Some are, are invested for uh, value. There are different types of funds. There are value funds. A value fund is where the manager of the mutual fund is looking for something, stocks that are on sale. So like a stock that's selling for below what they consider to be the real value of that in the market. So, oh, so this is like finding a distressed house, it's like but finding in a stock. A dis- yes, okay. Exactly. okay. So they're finding a distressed stock and they're fig- they, they, fig- they buy it while it's distressed, feeling that when the market fills out what their real value is, then you'll make profit once the real value is realized. So that's one concept of investing in 
uh, mutual funds as value funds. Then the other concept is what's called a growth fund. And those are companies, a lot of times they might be startup companies or they might be companies that are really making an impact in their particular endeavor. So they can, they're continuing to grow their business. And so that fund is going to make you money just because it's continuing to grow in their market share and in their business profits. So those are two different. And, and oftentimes the value funds, when they're doing well, the growth funds are not and vice versa. So you want to have a balance between the two in your uh, portfolio. You also want to have not just uh, mutual funds that are invested in stocks, but you also want to have some bond funds in there because bonds and stocks move in opposite directions. The main concept with investing in the market is to diversify. So you don't want all your eggs in one basket. So that's why you do some value, some growth, some bonds. You have some that's all U.S. funds, a little bit in international funds. And then that way it helps you to your, it helps your portfolio to be able to do well in all types of markets. And this is why I like real estate. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. The what stock, does no load funds? Oh, or, no load. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I just threw that term out there. I know. No I know. load means no sales fee. So there are mutual funds that are sold through, uh, financial advisors and the financial advisors gets a commission immediately upon selling you that. So that means that part of your money is not going into the market. It's going to pay their commission. The no load funds like Vanguard and Fidelity, you as an individual investor can buy the fund directly from the company without paying a sales charge. And therefore all your money goes right into that fund and right into the market. How does the company make their money? They take a they they get just a management fee. Okay. And so because they just get a and because fee. like they they're managing like billions of dollars, their management fee of one percent or whatever is still a whole lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Enough zeros, it is a lot of money. It's still isn't a lot it? of money, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's probably there's trillions in, in in the stock market. Absolutely. Yeah. But the stock market is a let me say the stock market is a long term investment. Yes. It it should not be gone into with the concept of I'm gonna invest in the stock market and have my money come back out in two years because you never know what it's gonna do in the short term. Um, I started investing in the stock market in my early twenties Well, I'm in my fifties now, but I've been in there, the stock market for 30 years, but it was always investing for either college, which was, you know, 15 years down the road or for retirement, which was 30 years down the road. So it's always been a long-term investment. And over the long term, the stock market has, has grown. So, but in the short term, you don't know what it's going to do. It could be crazy. Everybody that I know in real estate who's very successful too invests in real estate the same way. Okay. Long term, they might sell some stuff and buy some different stuff, but mm-hmm. they're in it long term. So it seems like if you're going to do, if you want to do really well, think longer than six months, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, some people just do wholesaling, which is in and out, in and out, in and yeah. out in real estate. But then the, the the downside of doing wholesaling is that every time you do a deal and sell it, you're you unemployed again. again. You yep. got to find another deal. You do. You? I do. I do it every month. Yeah. It's very annoying. Yeah. So you the keep thing doing I, it. The thing about rentals that I love is that, you know, some months I work really hard and I've got to, you know, manage getting repairs done. Some months nobody calls me. All they do is send me their rent checks and I'm so happy just to cash them. <laughs> <laughs> they don't talk. They don't call me. I don't call them. <laughs> Have you... Have you done any flips or I know I think you've done a few wholesales, right? I've done I've done like five or six wholesales. I've done two 
buy, fix and flips. And I've done some partnership deals with other people who were doing buy, fix and flips. And, you know, but yeah, I've done a couple flips where I did buy, fix and retail flip. I'm not as good at that. So that's why I don't do too many of those. It's tax disadvantage too. It's tax disadvantaged. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not as good at, I just, you know, you have to recognize what you're good at. And I was never, I could never get them done as quick, get them to the market quick. And then you got all these holding costs. And, um, and then it's really risky in that if you uh, overestimate what you think the retail price is going to be and underestimate what the repairs are going to be, you can be in your profit shit. can yeah. disappear real quick. Real quick. <laughs> I've had several go that way. Actually, yeah. go the other way, too. You're like, I just did six months of work and it cost me money. Exactly. Like, so that's ouch. frustrating. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. a little bit more frustrating. That's terrible. That is terrible. Yes. Well, at some point in time, too. <laughs> And you got bored investing in real estate, writing books and raising kids and starting mortgage businesses. <laughs> Apparently you decide you want to start pastoring, pastoring. How do I say that? I don't know if that's really a word. Is but that I, a word? I don't know. But yeah, I'm a pastor. Pastor. A what would be the verb? Ministering? Ministering. Okay. Yes. You got to help me out here. Thank you. You decided, you and your husband decided you want to start ministering as well. How did, how did that come about? And oh, that's been part of my whole life. Were you ministering I mean, the whole time? Um. I have not always been a licensed and ordained minister, but I've always been speaking okay. at church ever since I was a teenager. Ever since I was a teenager. When I was a teenager, they the pastor at the time would just call me up extemporaneously and say, you know, come on up here, Vicky. You know you want to preach and give us a summary on the Sunday school lesson. I would just get up and flow. That's okay. Just, I mean, you you notice I like to talk. So You're an excellent speaker, yes. So that's just in me to speak. I've never been afraid to get up in front of an audience and speak. You know, I'm very comfortable. One on a hundred, one on a thousand. I'm very comfortable with that. And and growing up, I've been in church my whole life. The Bible has always been I've been very, you know, into the Bible and taught the Bible and studying the Bible. So I've always uh felt there was something that I needed to do in terms of ministry. So I've always been in church and speaking in church. I wasn't always a licensed minister because back then they didn't have very many women ministers. And so I didn't always know what to do with this gift I had to talk. But as I uh, continued to be involved with church, I finally did realize that this is, you know, God wanted me to be in ministry. So I was, like I said, I was always speaking on the finance piece at churches. I've been doing that for over 30 years, been doing that. They need to hear it. When I've been, you know, yeah. going and doing that. And then when the books came out and then um, I did end up getting a license as a minister in 2004. Okay. So that's and when it, you're like, yeah, I'm getting serious. I, right? That's when it got serious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, so I was a associate minister at another church and was there for a number of years. And then finally I felt, you know, God speaking to, to me and my husband saying that we needed to start our own church. I don't think anyone should start a church just because they think it's a good idea. You know, if God don't tell you to do it, you shouldn't do it. So I really felt like God was telling us to do that. And he gave us confirmation through several people. And that's when we decided to go out and start the church. Okay. Where did you start your church at? Our church is in Farmington Hills. We meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. at the Caustic Center, which is at 28600 West 11 Mile, just um, east of Middle Belt. It's right next to Mercy High School. Okay. So we're meeting at a community center right now because we don't have our own building. But, um, you know, we've been... Averaging around 50 people a week coming to our church services, which is pretty good. And we've been um, trying to reach out to the community. Uh, the people in our church, we try to get people involved. And uh, some of our, our church members have been going door to door and 
you know, just witnessing the people and that, that's 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 right. That's where the metal meets the meet right there. Right. If you're on the knocking doors, knock on doors, and like tell the Jehovah's about, Witnesses or the yeah, Mormons, knock you know? on the door and tell people about Jesus. That's go go right doing. to them. Do you guys have a website or we do have a website? Our church website is liferenewalchurch.org. And I will put this in the show notes too. Yeah, liferenewalchurch.org. Yeah. And you guys meet on Sundays, right? And, yes, and we meet on Sundays. Yes. Okay. So and have, what can they? Because there's all sorts of churches. What can they expect if they? If well, they we are. Our non-denominational Protestant Bible-believing church, and we basically believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and that's what we teach from. We believe that whatever problem you may have in life, the answer can be found in God's Word, which is the Bible. And so okay. that's what we teach. We try to teach practical uh, messages that people can take and apply to their life during the during the week. What do you think would set you apart from other Protestant? Because they all say that. To, yeah. yeah, they all say where they everybody disagrees, though. Like, right? But they all say they're Bible believing, right? What, yeah. what What would set you apart from some of the other ones? Well, what would set us apart is that we are a touchable ministry. Um, sometimes other churches uh, you can't really connect with or talk with the pastor one on one, and we're very approachable. We're very uh, touchable. And we look at our church as being a community where we're doing life together and we can um, help one another to be more successful in this life. Jesus said, I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And we believe that abundant life is for here, is for now, is for helping you to have peace in your life, have joy in your heart, to mend broken relationships, to uh, be able to feel like you're forgiven for the things you've done wrong, and to to know that you have God with you throughout your day and throughout your your week to help you uh, make decisions and do whatever it is you want to do. So we believe in applying the gospel to practical everyday life to help people to live better. Well, and I know for sure we're going to make sure the finances are right, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll start, we'll, we'll start there. So this part of the podcast, um, I like it's like success habits or your favorite books or podcasts or whatever. And what I mean by this is, um, if you have a morning routine you think has helped you been successful or a weekly routine or a monthly routine, or like, I know some people sit down monthly and go over their net worth. Um, what are some of the things you have done? And then I like to go broad too. And you could just talk about your favorite books, maybe TV shows, radio shows, things that have influenced you that you can go, I learned this, this, and I think everybody should read this, this. Okay. Um, I don't know if you meditate. I know you pray, you go to church, you do, do all pray. that, right? Yes, so. yes absolutely. Uh, well, I would say in terms of um, things that I do on a regular basis, uh, first of all, every day I do start my day off with reading the Bible and prayer just to invite God into my day. I think that that's very important. Um, and then I, again, I write goals. So at the beginning of every year, I write goals and, um, my goals are, um, like in like the seven areas, I believe I got this from Zig Ziglar. He's one of okay. my favorites. I love Zig Ziglar and his book, see you at the top and, and goal setting and all of that. And we had went, um, back in, I believe it's 1990. We went to his workshop when Zig was still alive and, uh, it was called born to win. And, um, I think I have that CD. I yeah. love that CD. Yeah. So we got, we, it was a three day, a workshop born to win and he taught you all about how to create success in your life and set goals and accomplish your goals and 
And that was uh, one of those one of those things that was a life changing uh, moment for me because he talked about setting goals, and I hope I can remember it was like seven areas: uh, spiritual, education, financial, social, um, family. I'm trying to remember all of them. Um, career. Uh, and I probably said I'm going to Google it. Okay. So anyways, yeah. but, but one thing that he did, he had a, he called it the wheel of life and he'd draw a picture of this wheel and he would put a spoke in the wheel like you see on a bicycle. Yeah. And he'd put in the center would be zero and at the end of the spoke would be the number 10. And he'd put each one of those different areas on the spoke of the wheel and you had to rate yourself. You spiritual, to... mental, physical, social, career, financial, and family. Exactly. Is that right? That's it. All yeah. right. All right. So those are the those are the seven areas. And so then you rate yourself in each one of these areas from zero to ten. How do you feel you are in each one of these areas? Oh, like an assessment test yeah, of like where you're at. Like an assessment test, but it's in a wheel with the spokes. And so you you're rating yourself, and then he says, "Okay, connect the dots." And if you got like a 10 in career and a 2 in family and a 5 in education and a 3 in finance, you connect that. How does that wheel look? Looks kind of raggedy. Yeah. Would that wheel roll very well? No. So he really taught about how you need to have balance in your life through all the areas and all your career. And that's always stuck with me that. And that's why I was always juggling between, you know, being a stay at home mom, having a career but the children had to be important to me. The marriage had to be important to me. Having my career, having the finances, I was always juggling a lot of things, but I always wanted balance in my life. And I think that that is one of the reasons why I've been successful in a lot of areas because I was always trying to make sure I didn't get overboard in one area to the neglect of the others. Um, so I write my goals at the beginning of the year in all seven areas and I try not to write too many goals because I used to when I was young, I used to write all these goals. I'd have like seven pages of goals and you, you just can't do that much. You're ambitious. I'll give you that. Yeah. And, you know, when, as I've gotten older and gotten wiser, I realized, OK, you can't get all that done in a year. So I try to within each of the seven areas, you know, focus on the top two or three goals for each area. These are the top two or three things I want to work on. And um, with the goals, you have to set a goal. But it's not just setting a goal and specifically for like career. You can't just set a goal, but you have to also decide what are the activities I need to do that's going to accomplish this goal. So you're, it's again, beginning with the end in mind, which is Steve Covey phrase. You look at the goal. Now, what do I need to do to accomplish the goal? And then you make an activity list. And that becomes now what I need to look at each day to, to make sure that I'm moving towards the goal. So that's told you another couple authors I like Stephen Covey uh, First Things First and Seven Habits of Highly Successful People those are great books to read as well but um, that's helped me each and then what I do once I wrote my goals beginning of the year then I review them at least once a week I have them I still have a Franklin planner I don't use digital I still use writing but I feel like hey if it ain't broke don't fix it it, it helps it me works. work. It works. It I'm, works. I've accomplished yeah. a lot with this written planner, <laughs> so why do I need to go digital? So I have them written down, and they fit into my planner. I look at them on Monday, and what I try to do is set aside some time during the week to work on some of my goals. And, and you, what you have to do is set aside specific time for that 
because we all have life. Absolutely. Right? We all have stuff that just has to be done. Every day. Every day. Yep. And the stuff that we just have to get done every day is what gets in the way of you accomplishing something extraordinary that's your goal. And so you have to carve out time in your schedule to work on those things that are not part of the stuff. And particularly um, if you're trying to like transition, like a lot of people are working full-time jobs and they want to get into real estate and they want to get out of the full-time job and just do the real estate. Well, that's going to require you really to focus your time. So then, because you got to focus on how can I get this activity done after I work and after I take care of family needs, I got to fit in some time to work on the real estate so I can build that goal. And so you really have to, that's what I do. I look at it once a week, try to put some time in my schedule to work on those goals and make sure I'm moving forward. Well, you did that with real estate, right? Two days a week or my real estate yeah, days, Yeah, two days right? a week was my real estate days. Yep. I set aside specific times when my kids were young. These are the days I'm going to work on real estate. I feel like at least half of my failure was not a combination of not setting aside or breaking it down into daily work. Right. right. It's such a huge thing when you exactly. think about it, but if you neglect what do I have to do daily to make it happen, then you're not likely to succeed. Yeah. Right. How do you eat an elephant? Yeah. One bite at a time. <laughs> That's how I, I love that. Say who said that? I, I, I always know. forget. I who said, no I'm going to Google that too. Yeah, I love Google that, that too. I don't know. You eat that elephant. And hopefully it's not too big, but you eat that elephant one bite at one a time. One bite at a time. Um, so you review your goals weekly. Do you have any accountability or, or, or how do you, you're just now so disciplined? Um, I've become disciplined over the years. I was not always as disciplined as I am now. But the thing is, once you start owning properties, and now I own 18 properties. I think we start off saying, I bought one more. Yeah, so I'm up to 18. But once you end up, once you start accomplishing some of your goals, the activity of managing that thing now makes you more disciplined. You know, that's true. You know, oh, once man. you got 18 rental properties, I can't just sleep in. You know, I got to get up and make sure ain't nothing going on that I need to be dealing with because <laughs> I do manage my houses myself. Crichton Abrams, at least according to WikiQuote, a United States Army general who commanded military, who commanded military in the Vietnam War. So he's the one, at least according to the Internet, who said, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So Wonderful. I was curious. That's one of the things I love about the internet. We no longer have to wonder. We're like, wait a right. second, who said that? Yeah, you just you, Google it. Right. You don't have to go to the library. You don't or, have to wait at all. And, and use the card catalog. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling my age again. Have you thought, and maybe you've already done this, because uh-huh. you are an excellent speaker. I can listen to you talk all day. I swear to God, I could. Audiobooks. I have not done audiobooks and I've not thought about doing audiobooks on this. Um, I would maybe buy because I got too much to do right now. You, do, you sound busy. <laughs> Very busy. You, you got you got a lot going on. I but, do have a um, lot going on. I do have a lot going another on. Another reason I say audiobooks is the statistics for Americans actually reading books are mm. pretty bad. I know. Isn't it a shame? Ten percent. I'm gonna say I'm ten percent of Americans buy one book a year. Isn't that a shame? Of that 10%, 90% don't, don't even, even read, read it. <laughs> they just sit it on their shelf so they can look smart. And of that 10% of the 90%, they don't get past the first chapter. Oh, so something like 1% to 3% of the people who actually purchase books read it from start to finish. Mm. But I also brought up just because some authors, you don't want to hear them read their own books. I would love to hear you reading your oh, books. Wow. Yeah, because okay. I think you're an excellent speaker and I, I like listening to you speak. So something worth considering. And um, I'll consider as soon as I carve some more time in my yeah, schedule. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> two or three years when, <laughs> if you have any additional time. So um, at this point, was there anything that we didn't talk about 
that you would like to talk about. Um, I appreciate you um, coming out. So if there's something I missed or something, the you only thing plug, I would like to say in terms of, uh, you know, I own 18 rental properties and I manage rental properties successfully. And there's a lot of uh, potential real estate investors out there who've heard all the horror stories about tenants yeah. and they feel like, you know, I don't want to own rental properties. You know, tenants are bad. All tenants are bad. And I would just say that all tenants are not bad and you're going to get what you expect. Um, I expect when I have a vacant house that I'm going to get an excellent tenant who's going to take good care of my place, who's going to pay me on time, and who's going to be a, a good person to deal with. I have a cooperative relationship with the majority of my tenants, not an adversarial relationship. And I think that that's very possible if that's what you go out and go after. And um, so I, and the way I do that is, when I get a have a vacant house and I show my house, I'm going to screen my tenants very thoroughly. I have them fill out an application. I'm going to verify everything on that application, including their employment. I'm going to look at their pay stubs and W-2s if they bring them. I'm going to call their current and prior landlord. I'm going to do a credit report, a background check, a criminal check, a eviction check. And after I've done all of that, I pretty much got a good tenant. Now, the one thing that all of that can't screen for is if that person is just a horrible person to deal with. Yeah. And I've got one of those tenants right now, but they're about to get, you know, invited to move out (laughs) (laughs) because life is too short to deal with people who are just very negative to deal with. But the majority of my tenants have a very good, um, positive, cooperative relationship with. And as a matter of fact, the house I bought in 2006 Tenant moved in December 2006. She is still my tenant. And she tells me I'm the best landlord she ever had. And then I tell her, you're the best tenant I ever had. (laughs) She don't know I say that to the other tenants too. But we have a good working relationship. She pays the rent on time. I take care of things when they need to be fixed. And we just have a good relationship. So I think that you can get good tenants. And if you believe that you can, then you will. What about that? Was that house in Livonia that... uh... How's how's that one going? The one that um, we wholesaled you? Oh, in Redford. Redford, Redford. sorry, Redford. Yeah, I, I don't do Livonia. I was gonna say I never did nothing in Livonia. I'm sorry, I can't. That's remember. Redford. Yeah, all yeah. my the majority of my houses are in Redford, but that one's doing pretty good. The still doing tenant, good? You still have the same tenant, or I still have the same tenant, although they got really far behind. They did just recently, as a matter of fact, last week or two weeks ago, they just caught everything up, and so they are all caught up. And then I sent them a letter after they got all caught up and raised the rent on them. <laughs> but um, it was low rent, though. It if I was remember low rent. Yeah. It was low for the area. So, and I didn't raise it up to what I could get because it was at nine hundred. And I just raised them to nine thirty. And I put in the letter, you know, the rents in this area, I really could get a thousand dollars. So they were squawking that I raised the rent. But I'm like, OK, well, if you get mad and move, I won't care because the next tenant's is going to be paying a thousand a month. So. So far, they're still there and it's Whipping still in working. shape, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. You have to train your tenants on how to uh, take care of your home and how to pay you. And if you tolerate tenants not uh, treating you right or not treating your house right or not paying you on time, that's a, that's your problem. You have to train them on how to, to handle things and train them to pay you on time and, and let them know there'll be consequences. You know, I... I We'll send out the seven-day notice, which is the first step in the eviction process. I send that out on a regular basis so that they know I'm serious, that I will evict if I have to. Nine times out of ten, they just don't want to be evicted, so they will pay you. Mm. You know, 
I have been managing rentals now for over 20 years between the time when I managed in Detroit and now the ones I have now. I have 18 units now. I had 12 units then. So that's 30 units managed over 20 years. I've only had to have the bailiff physically set out one tenant in all that time. Now, have I, have I had to encourage some tenants to move? Yes. And <laughs> I had to take them to court? Yes. But I try to motivate them to move themselves out. And that's what I do. If it's not working, look, this is just not working. Why don't you move? And, you know, if necessary, I'll pay them to move because it's cheaper in the long yeah. run than paying the bailiff. So whatever it is, if the tenant is not working, I'll get them to move out and if and get a better tenant in there. You'll sleep better at night and you'll make make some profit. Well, that's how we got such a good deal on it. That lady had been educating her tenants on everything wrong to do for so long. That, right. Yeah, you had to get them and whip them and in shape. And I had to whip you know? them in shape. And, yeah. and the first thing I did was I did spend uh, uh, some money to fix some things that were broken over there. And one thing they said was, you know, the other lady never fixed anything over here. So you have to do your job as a Absolutely, landlord. Right? You got to fix stuff when it's broken. So I fixed stuff over there. And after I spent over the course of a year, I spent, you know, about $2,500. Well, the city inspected it too. And they came up with some things for me to fix. So after I fixed a bunch of stuff, they see, oh, you're spending money on this. We really appreciate this. It was like, okay, now you're going to pay me a better rent because I know this house is worth more than what you're paying me. Mm. <laughs> Train your tenants. Train your tenants. Mm. Thank you, Vicky. Thanks for coming out. Is there anything you are else? more than welcome. No, I well, think that was I had it. a great time. I did too. Thanks yeah. for having me. I really appreciate it. So hold on here. I want to thank my guest, Vicky, for her time today. And I'd like to encourage you to go check out what she is working on. Um, if you go to VickySpringLove.org, you can check out her books. Um, she's got a bunch of stuff there. You can email her at Jubilee Homes, J-U-B-I-L-E-E Homes at yahoo.com. Give her a ring, 248-796-8218. And what's the website again for your church? I'll put it in the show the notes. The website for the church is liferenewalchurch.org. Liferenewalchurch.org. And she did write two books, which you can get on her website or Amazon. Buy them, Stop Robbing Peter to Pay Paul or Changing Your Money Mindset, 21 Days to a More Prosperous Life. I think they're excellent. And I'd even say, even if you're not Christian or you're another religion, they're still great books. Um, I would highly encourage them. I read them. I like them. I think they're excellent, um, especially the Stop Robbing Peter to Pay Paul. If you find yourself unable to save money and get ahead in life, get that book. That would be a good place to start. It's it's not scary. How many pages is it? It's they're 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 big too. Yeah, hundred and sixty three. You can do that, folks. I know it seems a lot, and it's not even that big of a book. You can absolutely do it. It's got worksheets, has everything in there that you need to uh, get your life in shape. Quit being a dirtbag, all right? <laughs> you can do better. Um, if you enjoy this podcast and find it helpful too, share it with your friends, folks. It's a free podcast. Um, give it a like if you enjoy it, and I'd really appreciate it if you haven't already. Rate on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite um, podcast app is. Um, if you're interested in, uh, if you have any comments or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in attending the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. And those are free too, by the way, folks. I don't charge any money for those anymore. You can hit me up on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess and you can go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And as I wrap it up this podcast, to wrap it up, I'm going to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. 
I know. I say this every week. I know you have lots of distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits, bad starts in life. Pick some goals, man. Do some stuff. Stick with it. Don't give up. Do something every day that gets you closer, even if it's one step. And I want to thank you for listening. I know you can be doing lots of other things right now. I really do appreciate your attention. And until the next podcast, crush it.